Welcome pilgrims and fellow travelers to Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic. I am your host, Al-Hajj Daudi. Welcome to the inaugural session of our podcast of Saints and Sufis. I'm your host, uh, David Peck. My Sufi name is Al-Hajj Daoudi, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Brittany Hartley. We're going to do things a little bit different today. I've asked her to interview me. Uh, I think she can ask questions that will be more pertinent and of interest to my audience. So, Brittany, take over. Okay, let me just introduce myself. My name is Brittany Hartley. I have a master's degree in the future of American religion, and I do a lot of work in the post-Mormon community. I met David Peck when I was 18 years old. I was a student, and this was now almost 20 years ago, and he's been a spiritual mentor for me ever since. I'm still his student all these years later, so I am so looking forward to interviewing David today about his life as a Mormon Sufi and what Sufism is all about. And uh, so let's get into it. So David, do you just want to introduce yourself and then tell us about this podcast and how you came up with the title? My first introduction to um, the Middle East and to Islam and to what would later be an introduction to Sufism um, kind of began in fifth grade, actually. Um, We had a world geography element uh, of our curriculum. I was uh, going to school in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And uh, I remember we studied something about Judaism, which was represented uh, graphically on our uh, regional map that we used in the unit in our textbook with uh, the Star of David and then Christianity represented by a cross. But then down in the Arabian Peninsula, there was this crescent moon thing. And I wasn't sure entirely what it was, but um, essentially uh, that was my my first introduction to Islam. I learned learned that it was called Islam, and it was um, a religion associated with Arabia and a fellow named Muhammad. Uh, But really, I I began to get connected to the region in high school. My high school, Brighton High School in in the Cottonwood Heights, um, Sandy, Utah area, was assigned... uh, all of the Arab countries of the world as part of a Model United Nations project during my senior year. And I knew nothing about this part of the world. Uh, It's peoples, really. I knew there was a state of Israel, and uh, that was probably just about it. I didn't know why Turkey was called Turkey. seemed odd to me at the time. But um, in order to prepare for my assignments, I, uh, I had to learn about the region. And as I learned about the Islamic religion, which was a necessary corollary to understanding the Middle East and working in the Model United Nations competition, uh, I began to appreciate what I perceived as uh, the virtues and strengths of the religion and of the culture I learned about the greatness of Islamic civilization, um, the invention of uh, algebra and trigonometry, and uh, arithmetic as we understand it. I learned about their sciences and just uh, the greatness of this civilization and fell in love with it. I enjoyed it. 
So uh, when I graduated from high school, just a little while later, I had uh, some time before I would leave for a mission uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I used that time to do even more preparation in a variety of ways. For one thing, uh, although not related to Islam or the Middle East, I read um, several versions of the, uh, or several kind of editions of the uh, Roman Catholic um, catechism so I could come to understand Roman Catholicism better once I knew that I was I was going to Spain which was at that time arguably the most Roman Catholic uh, country in the world or at least among the top ones and I was going to the city of Seville which I think pretty much was the most Roman Catholic city in the world at that time so uh, I also prepared um, to learn more about the Middle East and about Islam and took several courses, um, took a course on introduction to the politics of the Middle East and and so on and so forth, began learning a little bit of the Arabic language and uh, really deepened my knowledge and appreciation. When it came time for me to go on my mission, I thought to myself, well, I'm, I don't want to you know, seem to impose upon God to send me to a particular place. But in my heart and my prayers, I said, I really would like to go to a place where this Islamic civilization was present, these people. And at that time, really the only place in the world I could have been sent to that that might have come true was uh, Spain, and in particularly southern Spain, meaning the Seville Spain mission, the exact spot I was sent to. And so while I was on my mission, I learned uh, much more about what was called Moorish civilization um, and what had occurred uh, during the near 700-year period that uh, Islamic, uh, Islamic civilization, culture, and politics had ruled much of uh, the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, I learned about the ways in which uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims got along fairly well under Islamic rule. We tend to think of them as native combatants, but that's not necessarily true. And in many parts of, of history, uh, there's been uh, good cooperation and conviviality between the communities. And so I went on my mission. I visited amazing Moorish architecture. Uh, the Grand Mosque uh, was uh, built by the Umayyad dynasty in the 700s. The Grand Mosque of Cordoba and La Giralda, a tower in Sevilla and many other places, and uh, really grew to appreciate even more the accomplishments of this civilization, its religion, and its culture. Perhaps more importantly, I became convinced that many of the individuals I was teaching, or in some cases helping baptize, were descendants of these uh, Moorish people, and uh, came to appreciate the strength of their faith and, and the way they lived. They were beautiful people, uh, often with a, a jet black hair, an olive complexion, and these beautiful blue crystalline eyes, and uh, fell in love with them and wanted to know more about them, their civilization, their religion, and how they lived. Then when I returned from my mission, I began a, a trajectory of study culminating in a, a PhD in the history of the Middle East and Islamic civilization. I was fortunate enough to have a career for nearly 30 years at Brigham Young University, Idaho, when I was hired as Ricks College. And during that time, taught a lot of courses on the Middle East, a number of courses on the history of religion, and uh, just had great experiences with my students, great interest on their part, 
and uh, that, that was an enriching professional life. Personally, I think that uh, my decision to uh, become a Sufi and my, my decision to uh, speak to Sufism and especially as a Mormon to speak to the Sufi tradition uh, grew over an extended period of time. Uh, as an undergraduate uh, in the late 1970s, uh, after my mission, early 80s, I studied Sufi thinkers, philosophers, uh, Al-Ghazali, one of uh, one of the great Muslim thinkers. Also uh, studied uh, Mohiyuddin Ibn al-Arabi, who's called the Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest master. And as I studied the philosophy, I really began to incorporate it into my life, and but then came to know later on that I was missing uh, some things, namely practice. It was one thing to understand or to study Sufi tradition, but it's quite a different thing to be a Sufi. And so um, I elected to, to follow the Sufi path later on in my life. As for this podcast, I've decided to approach the topic of what we might call Sufism less as a subject out there, so to speak, and more like an experiential living tradition in here, meaning in my soul. So that's a little different for a college professor because we are really good at teaching things out there, sort of ideal forms of religions or ideal forms of cultural expression that may or may not exist in reality. And Sufi tradition is grounded in reality, and so I decided that uh, rather than trying to be a teacher, I was just going to be uh, someone who shares, uh, a Mormon who is also a Sufi. No isms used as such, like Mormonism or Sufism. These tend to describe uh, the podcast in those sort of idealist terms. Instead, I'm going to uh, try to aim at its core in practice as myself being a Mormon and a mystic. The purpose of following the spiritual path of Sufism is, above all, to awaken one's soul to its own condition, a term in Arabic called sha'ir. Sha'ir refers to an awareness, a conscious awareness of my spiritual condition. Within Mormon tradition, maybe I, this is how I've tended to think of it. I tend to think of it as, as maybe what we would call the natural man or uh, the, the ways in which we think of us as fallen. Instead, the idea of sha'ir is we're asleep. It's much more like uh, Nephi's discussion of someone who is asleep and, and dreams that they're eating or drinking, but then they, they awaken and find they're not. It's that awakening to find that you have been in sleep but not conscious of your, your condition. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about is this idea of awakening the soul, and then after that, assuming personal responsibility for my soul's return journey back to its origins. So it's a path of sustained implementation of truth, but truth that I must learn through my own experience. I think it's very important that within my tradition, we're taught that it is by our own experience. So in my case, it's by my own experience that I learn to judge good from evil. This makes my project sort of inherently subjective. This podcast will have a high element of autobiography. Uh, and it is a story of my conscious engagement with my soul. 
as Mormon and Sufi. So, because whatever wisdom I may have gained in pursuit of my spiritual path is idiosyncratic, it applies to me most directly. My weaknesses, my virtues, my trials, my triumphs. Nevertheless, because the soul's return journey itself, the path we follow, which is a path of experience, because that's universal to all souls, there's profit in sharing the autobiographical experience. It's much like a more extended and detailed uh, personal testimony uh, driven by subject and driven by experience toward being Sufi and Mormon. So in the title of the podcast, I use the term musings, right? The full title is Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic. And what I mean by that is I'm going to follow topics, follow threads grounded in my personal journey as Mormon and Sufi in the hope, the belief, the desire that they will prove to be of interest or perhaps even help to you as you pursue your own soul's journey back to its origin. Was really beautiful when you were speaking it just take it it took me back to when you know I'm 18 years old I'm showing up at college the first time and um, you know we we have classes together and none of the classes that I took from you were Sufism I never signed up for that class I wouldn't even probably at that age have known what that word meant but everything that we did together so we did world religions um, we did a lot of history classes. We did a class on Dante's Divine Comedy. None of these were specifically Sufi texts, but w you were always approaching it with this idea of how does this awaken your soul? And it was really transformative for me at that young age and, and why we continued our relationship. And so I just really, um, when you were speaking, it just reminded me of, of uh, the way you taught in your career and that no matter what the text was, we can approach it with our souls. And that when you do that, um, it can have a really profound impact on your life. So you talked recently, um, or you talked just a second ago about um, becoming a Sufi. Um, so can you flesh that out and just kind of tell us what does that mean to become a Sufi? What does that process look like? Yes. I. Uh I think I've always had mystical tendencies, and Sufism is considered a mystical path. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, mysticism and what that means. But all along in my life, um, I've had these tendencies, and I was unaware of them. It was just the way in which I wanted to interact with other people. It was the way I wanted to be spiritual. It was the way that I wanted to be friends with both uh, people who were Mormon and people who were not. And so uh, I think a lot of us 
have these these uh, leanings within ourselves, and when we're exposed to a mystical path or to Sufism, then they can they can awaken in us. Uh, for example, uh, I sought spiritual experiences from a very young age, and I had several. And in my own personal case, many of my spiritual experiences came from my dreams. And so I, I kind of discovered this, this uh, venue in which I could explore my, pers my personal spirituality. So then uh, I began to apply that not only to my religious life, but in my academic life as well. And finally, after studying Sufi writers, uh, among others, for, for a, a good deal of time. Christian mystics as well. Julian of Norwich, for example, and, and some very powerful, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. Uh, as I worked my way through these, these people, Meister Eckhart and, and many others, Thomas Merton, as I worked my way through them, I began to realize how to understand Sufism more fully as a spiritual path and woke up one day and said, you can't study mysticism, you have to become a mystic. And in my case, I need to become Sufi. So let's step back for uh, just a second and answer that question of, of becoming a Sufi. I had the opportunity in 2010 and 2011 to teach as a lecturer at the University of Delhi in India uh, as a Fulbright Nehru visiting lecturer and when I took that uh, opportunity and, and spent quite a deal of time um, in India, I decided that I wanted to learn more about South Asian uh, Islamic practice broadly, but Sufism in particular. And there are numerous Sufi orders in South Asia. The one I was most attracted to is called the Chishtia order. And so I asked people, faculty from, from uh, other universities, uh, Jamiat Mali Islamia and University of Delhi, uh, Lady Sri Ram College, who I should talk to. And many people said, you need to talk to a man named Salman Chishti. And his name Chishti, of course, is, is part of that Chishtia lineage of Sufism, that stream of Sufism practiced in South Asia. And so uh, I met him, interacted with him at numerous levels over the following years. And in 2014, uh, was invited to the Congress of the Universal Sufi Council in Istanbul. Uh, there were 21 Sufi masters from all over the Islamic world, and only three of us that weren't Sufi masters. There was a, a, um, a swami, a, a Hindu swami that was there, who had beautiful messages for us. We also had a Zen priestess who uh, was able to bring a Zen uh, perspective. And then I'm this strange Mormon sitting at this table uh, surrounded by Sufi masters who represent millions of people worldwide and millions of Sufis in the Islamic world all over, every continent just about. I don't know if any represented Antarctica, but short of Antarctica, every continent. So I, I thought, this is my opportunity to pursue things. And I met there my future Sufi master, a man named Shabda Khan, and made friends with um, a, a gentleman who was just recently deceased, Johannes Witwein, who was a vice prime minister of the Netherlands. He was uh, one of the managing directors at one time of the International Monetary Fund, one of the great economists of the, the mid-20th century. 
I was surrounded by these kinds of people, and Jonathan Granoff of the Global Security Institute in, in New York, and just realized the company I was keeping was powerful in the world and powerful spiritually. And as we worked together, I thought, this is where I want to go, and universal Sufism was a big, big part of that. So at that conference in March of 2014, I spoke with Shabda, and I said, I'm... I'm a practicing Mormon, but I want to be a Sufi too. Do I have to give up my Mormonism to be a Sufi in your lineage? He says, no. No, we want you to follow your religious leanings. We want to be a blessing to your religious life. We don't want to detract from that. And I said, would you be my master? And he said, I know you were going to ask that, and I'm glad you asked it, and the answer is yes. We stayed in this wonderful little hotel in Sultan Ahmed district of Istanbul. And up on top was a breakfast patio. And we went up on top there at about 2 a.m. And in the background, lit up, beautiful as can be, was the Blue Mosque. And I was initiated by Shabda into the uh, Chishtia lineage and into universal Sufism uh, with my friends surrounding me. It was a very beautiful experience. So that's kind of how I made these connections around the world and, and, and was just invited along. It was really rather remarkable. And uh, I think it was a path that led me because I had a desire in my heart. I think that's the key. We have a desire in our, in our soul and, and we follow that path. So that's kind of how I, how I became a Sufi. So before we do a deep dive into kind of what Sufism is and what makes it a wisdom tradition, and you spoke about mysticism, and we will we'll do a deep dive into all that. Right now that you're uh, retired from, from BYU-Idaho, uh, you act as a Sufi guide, a, a Sufi master, a murshid. And so can you speak just for a moment before we kind of do our deep dive into Sufism? Um, what that means to now be um, a Sufi master and what that work entails. Being a Sufi master is an undertaking of a deep spiritual dimension that I am growing into. Uh, I never sought it. In fact, I think if you seek it, that's one of the reasons why it should never happen because it needs to be done from soul space and, and heart space. And, and done lovingly and kindly. So how I became a master. While I was teaching at BYU-Idaho, um, over the last couple of decades, I began to notice that my students were increasingly anxious. They were especially anxious among the students with such questions as their identity, their relationship to the university's institution, their relationship to their religious institutions, and uh, their relationship with the divine. Many of them felt that they were uh, cut off or distanced or isolated in some sense from what had once been a, a more vibrant and rich spiritual engagement. At this time, I was, uh, of course, teaching about the history of religion, which was uh, one of my areas of instruction, also Islamic civilization. And when I taught about these subjects, I introduced the subject of Sufism 
as well as mysticism generally within Christianity or other traditions, taught about Eastern religion, didn't focus exclusively on Sufism. And I never tried to push anything on students. I never tried to make them feel or believe in a certain way, but simply presented these systems. And many students began to think about spiritual or wisdom traditions in ways that might help them feel less anxious spiritually about themselves and about their role in the world around them. And uh, I had a couple of students as I was retiring to where I didn't feel I had a, an institutional obligation not to interfere with their religious life, uh, you know, in any way. I had a couple of students come to me and say, you know, I need to know more about Sufism. Uh, one of the young students was troubled by sexual identity, and uh, she was struggling with that, trying to understand herself, trying to understand if that meant she would have to leave the church that she desperately loved, really deep, heartfelt connection to, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and, and wanted to preserve that, was also anxious that if somebody learned she had same-sex attraction that she might be dismissed from the college and that would end her academic career, a lot of these anxieties. And I had male students with different issues as well. And they knew I was retiring, and she said, I, I want you to be my Sufi teacher. And I said, well, I, I'm not initiated as a teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm just a, a Sufi. And uh, she said, well, how do you do that? Can't you, can't you help me? I just feel like there's a connection here. I feel like I'm distant from God, that I pray, but there's no one there listening to me, or that because I have same-sex attraction, I'm unworthy uh, somehow of love, divine love. And uh, a lot of tears and a lot of really uh, anxiety. And so I contacted Shabda. And I said, Shabda, here's the situation. I have this student. He says, you have a real connection with that student already. And I said, I feel I do. And he said, let me take that up with the council in our order and see what we're going to do. And he called me a few weeks later. And, and he said, David, uh, would you be willing to be initiated um, at a certain degree of initiation and become a Sufi teacher? And I said, are you confident I can do that? And he says, oh, yeah, no, I, I have no question about that. And I thought, well, I probably do. But if you don't, I'm willing to do it. And so he, he uh, essentially set it up and, and had me initiated. And then the people I was working with had friends or they had other connections. And, and, and Britt, uh, is it okay if I mention your, your Sufism? Uh, Britt, uh, we've kept kind of contact off and on over the years. Uh, and I was aware of her work and what she was doing educationally and in writing. And, uh, you know, you contacted me by email, and, and we arranged to meet uh, f for lunch at a you know, restaurant, and uh, your father came, and your children, I got to meet them and things, and, uh, but while we were there, I just kind of brought Sufism up and described it and, and laid it out there, and then you reached back out and, and indicated an interest, and we began a journey together that then drew me into a number of people in uh, western Idaho who themselves are very interested, and so the group of, of people that I teach has grown. Now, an important thing to note about being a Sufi guide 
is that it, that doesn't mean I really know anything about the spiritual path of that individual. They have to know that spiritual path, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. My, my job isn't to tell them what they have to do. My job is not to, to give them some, you know, th- these are the things that you must do, etc. My job is to help them awaken their soul, to help them begin with sha'ir, a consciousness of their own condition, and to help them make some decisions about how they might learn to awaken their soul and listen to their soul and follow their soul and, and find spiritual progress in that. And so my particular Sufi order gives the name or title Murshid to the guide. And Murshid is derived from the Arabic root Rashada. It refers to one who has traveled the path, one who has wisdom, one who has knowledge, one who has experience, such that they are recognized by the order as qualified to lead and teach others down the Sufi path. We give the Arabic title or name or designation Murid to the disciple or the student, and Murid means one who seeks. And so the seeker is combined with the one who has the knowledge and wisdom to help them along the path. The relationship between the murshid and the murid is often a very close one because the murshid is trying to give very individualized and specific assistance to the murid. And that means that they often uh, come close to each other and confide in each other in appropriate ways and uh, connect in deep spiritual meaning at a level of trust that is really difficult to find when the source of guidance or the source of authority is broad or general, uh, is communicated to large groups of people without uh, adequate consideration to the needs of the individual soul. Consequently, the role of the guide is integral in assisting the murid to traverse the spiritual path, a process called suluk in Arabic, the traversing of the spiritual path. I should say that it requires a lot from the murshid. The murshid must always be honest. The murshid must always try to check their own ego at the door of each session with a student. They should always try to understand and believe that what the student needs is what they should be providing, not what the murshid might think is right. And that the murshid is always gentle in their treatment of the student, always looking for the student's virtues not the student's faults, always seeking to help the student build up their confidence as they traverse the Sufi path. So as a murshid, my job is to say, I've just been a little further down the Sufi path than than you have. And I've been initiated and given sort of a a position to where I I can do that with confidence and have the support of my my order and and, uh, can can do that. But the, the rule is, I'm a guide, but not an authority when it comes to the soul. I may be an authority on Arabic or something more than they are, or on Sufi writings, but not an authority over their soul. They are the authority over their soul. Any attempt by me to interfere with their spiritual progress or to push where it's unwelcome or maybe a power move is unrighteous dominion. I call it spiritual violence. 
And so part of being immersed, the, probably the most difficult part is to love somebody deeply, to yearn for their spiritual progress, but to make sure that it's their progress and, and that they are being fulfilled in the way they want to be fulfilled. From a Sufi perspective, the wisdom traditions and spiritual traditions which are practiced are very ancient, older than the founding of Islam in the 600s by Muhammad of Mecca, older than Jesus, older than Abraham, older than Enoch, tracing all the way back through a tradition reaching into the origins of humanity, whether those origins be considered uh, original parents named Adam or Eve, or whether those origins be considered an evolutionary process that produced beings capable of exercising agency and understanding their own spiritual progress, possessed of a soul sufficient to engage in a spiritual path. And that this tradition was given by the divine, given by God, to all of humanity. And that the practice of these wisdom traditions is a rite that stretches all the way back to the origins of humanity. And that the Sufi path is a divine gift, a birthright of every soul, in every place, and in every time. This divine spiritual path has continued in an unbroken chain from the earliest humans down to the present time. And that along the way, there are many guides that have appeared or have been divinely appointed to teach the spirituality originally given by the divine to the first humans in order to provide a continuous living stream of spiritual guidance for all peoples at all times and in all places. My particular tradition recognizes key figures, very important figures who have appeared throughout time in order to provide this living stream of divine guidance, figures both male and female, some of which you probably will recognize. Within my own stream, uh, one of them would be uh, Abraham. Another is Idris, which is Enoch in, uh, in, in Arabic and the Sufi tradition. But outside of that tradition, also recognition of, of Buddha, recognition of, of uh Chuangzi, or within the Taoist tradition, or many others, including important female saints such as Rabia al Adawiya, also known as Rabia Basri, who was an 8th century saint from um, the Middle East, as well as other figures in modern times such as Mother Teresa. All of this guidance is provided universally by the divine for the benefit of all souls. It's not proprietary. It's accessible, but it has been associated with cultures and traditions and religious systems throughout that history, and they exert an influence on the way it is taught, which is only natural because it has to be taught in the language of the people of the day or a language that they can have access to or, or learn about. They don't have to master a language, but they, they may need some facility with certain things. Uh, and so we find mystical streams like Sufism throughout uh, human society and throughout human history. And my particular tradition honors them all. 
and uh, allows free expression of those traditions or anything uh, a member would like to, to express without prejudice or, or requirements of any kind. So <clears throat> Sufism then is the path that has for the last, oh, I don't know, uh, 1,500 years or so, been associated with Middle Eastern culture and Islam in particular. So sometimes it's called Islamic mysticism, but that's not a favored title among many Sufis because they'll go, it's not Islamic as such. It was protected, sheltered, and developed in the form that we find it today in our tradition within the Islamic world, but it is not itself Islam. Uh, 